Welcome back to Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Today is part one of a two-part episode where we talk about Hawaiian honeycreepers. John, Shannon, Amanda, and I talked to Jacob Drucker on this episode. Jacob is a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago in the Field Museum studying how birds interact with tropical climates over ecological and evolutionary time. He has spent over a year in Hawaii working with the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project as a regular volunteer with the Department of Land and Natural Resources on the Big Island and as a guide for Victor Emanuel nature tours. His photos have been featured in the American Birding Association's Field Guide to Birds of Hawaii. There's certainly a lot to discuss about the Hawaiian honeycreepers, so we are releasing it in two different parts. Today we'll talk about their evolutionary path and how the different types of honeycreepers have adapted to the unique Hawaiian climates. Next week we'll talk more about the conservation efforts and what has led to the extinction of some species and threatens others. It's a lot to unpack and at times a very tough discussion, but these birds are certainly amazing and it's fascinating to learn all about them. Okay, go get your binoculars and let's get started. All right. Welcome back to Birds of a Feather Talk Together. This is RJ. I'm with Amanda, John, Shannon, and we have a very special guest today, Jacob, who we're going to talk to. Um, so today we're talking about the Hawaiian honeycreepers, and we brought Jacob in to tell us all about them. Um, so Jacob, do you want to start a little bit? Just tell us about yourself. Sure. Yeah. My name is Jacob Drucker. I'm a grad student at the University of Chicago in the Field Museum. And while my primary research does not focus explicitly on Hawaiian honeycreepers, I was lucky enough to spend a couple field seasons working with people in Kauai and on the Big Island um, on a couple of different conservation projects, working with them and have spent enough time around the people who have devoted their lives to these birds that I feel like I can convey some of the information. Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about our job is we get to meet people who have been to places that we never have. And so when this topic came up, it was like, we need to find somebody who knows what they're talking about. That's not me. I've only <laughs> seen them dead in the museum, and they're awesome there. So I have this thing. I don't want to go to Hawaii, which is for a weird, the weirdest possible reason, which is I don't want to go places you could drive off the edge. Oh. <laughs> and I feel like that about why you can drive. So I don't want to go on a cruise ship for the same thing. Uh, I don't want someone to constrain me <laughs> that much. Very strange. I've been to Maui and I've driven on the, the Hana Highway where it's like you're literally looking down and it's like, I mean, hundreds of feet off the cliff oh. and the whole time you're wanting to look at the view or look at wildlife and stuff like that. It's crazy. Compared so. to how far it is once you get in the water to the next bits of land. Oh, yeah. hundred <laughs> feet is nothing. Well, Big Island is your island because it's the newest. Is it the most populated one, though? No, it's the least populated. Oh, well, then I would like it then. So we should, we should talk no a little bit about people. that from the perspective of the, the geography of Hawaii and why it is what it is. I'm teaching biogeography right now, so I was <laughs> thinking about that. So why don't you talk a little bit about being a volcanic hotspot? Yeah, sure. Well, I can't personally speak to what it's like to be a volcanic hotspot. <laughs> but my understand and I'm not a geologist, but my understanding is that uh, hot, these hotspots are locations below the Earth's crust where where the Earth's crust is is uh, is thinner, and so the heat from the Earth kind of comes up and funnels up, and through different periods of heating and cooling and heating and cooling, um, as the Earth as the Earth's crust is shifting in a given direction. Um, islands will form through this volcanic activity. And in the case of Hawaii, the Earth's crust has been shifting to the northeast, northwest, excuse me, I get my easts and wests confused in that part of the world. But um, 
the, the case in point is that you've had islands forming and eroding over tens of millions of years in this part of the world, all the way out from Kure Atoll, which is just a little ring of sand that used to be presumably a volcano the size of, of Mauna Kea, which is at the other end of the island chain um, and is an island that's a little over a million years old, between one and two million years. Uh, the island itself has a handful of larger volcanoes, but the largest of which is Mauna Kea. And so people will say Everest is the tallest uh point on earth from sea level to above sea level but when you include all the area below the water level at it's higher than everest it's higher than ever it's, wow. it's higher than everest when you include from bottom of the sea to top of the mountain wow wow um and that's not and so that was i guess and that and mauna loa the other lo- which is still active um are the two lar- largest on that island and um there's, and then Kilauea, of course, is the one that's particularly active right now and kind of goes through periods. So, of uh, so the Big Island is is the youngest. Um, it's the, also the the nominate island of Hawaii. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to get too and I'm not going to say all of my W's as V's. Like I guess I should be saying Hawaii, <laughs> Hawaii. And make sure all my, my make sure all my I'll be a little sloppy with my vowel pronunciation too. <laughs> well, it sounds right to us. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And but. so Hawaii itself, I mean, a lot of people, because it's part of the U.S., people don't realize, like, it really is one of the most isolated parts, like, away from everything else in the whole world, right? I mean, it's as far as... Absolutely. And, yeah. and if you're, you know, if you've got wings, you might be able to get there, but but there's certainly a limited amount of things that have actually managed to make it there. Okay. And these, you know, the Hawaiian honey creepers are just such a great example of this because they got their upwards of six to seven million years ago and have been out there moving across those islands, you know, which are filled with tropical plants. We should talk a little bit about that because, you know, that's one of the great things about Hawaii that makes it so possible for a radiation like these Hawaiian honeycreepers to actually appear. So originally it was just birds, plants, and insects that were there. Is that right? Like there were no mammals uh, is that correct? The that's only mammal that's uh, been recorded on Hawaii as a native is a bat. Okay. Oh, wow. Wow. Other than the marine mammals. Of yeah. Okay. Of which okay. there's one monk seal. So did everything kind of derive from one bird and then evolved from there? This no, is maybe from a small flock of birds okay. that might have started out as a giant flock of birds. One of the things we didn't know until relatively recently is what the closest living relatives of the Hawaiian honeycreepers were there were lots of speculations. Hawaiian honeycreepers are fringillids, car-dwelling finches. They're in the same family with car-dwelling finches, um, and it turns out that a lot of the things that we thought we were kind of off by a few nodes <laughs> of the tree of life. And and a paper that was published in 2011, uh, which was an interesting group of people, a graduate student at the time named Heather Lerner and her uh, advisors were Rob Fleischer, who works at the um, at the Conservation Genomics Center at the Smithsonian, and Helen James, who's a paleontologist who also worked at the Smithsonian. So it was a really good group of people to be involved in a project like that. And she did a tree of life based on mitochondrial DNA and nuclear a bunch of nuclear genes and found that it was rose finches were the closest living relatives of uh, of the Hawaiian honeycreepers. And the cool thing about most of the birds that are related to them is they have these nomadic, eruptive lifestyles. So they 
when resources are low, they pick up en masse, and I mean hundreds of thousands of birds en masse and move somewhere else, which makes them kind of hard to study because you don't know where they are necessarily. You don't know where they're going to go. Um, but in this case, you know, a bunch of them went across <laughs> and landed in Hawaii. And my guess is there were, it wasn't just one, well, it can't be just one bird, right? Unless it's a pregnant female. Um, but so I had, must have been, I can't even imagine how many birds must have died along the way, given how that's not the easiest flight to take in the world. And so they landed in Hawaii and proceeded to, because they didn't have competition, I suppose, and because there was some flexibility in their morphologies and their feeding behaviors, they proceeded to occupy all of the niches on all of these islands and subsequently, oops, subsequently colonized the islands as they, as they formed and then back colonized the islands mm -hmm. <laughs> because they could. Mm -hmm. And now they're an incredible radiation. If you look at picture books of them, they have beaks that are typical seed-eating beaks that you might think of a finch having, but then they have things that look like parrots and things that look like warblers and things that look like uh, woodpeckers. You know, they've done, they've done it all by this point. And so what exactly does like radiation mean then when we're talking about adaptation? Yeah, that's a complicated question. <laughs> but a, an adaptive radiation means diversification, speciation, and changing your properties as you go. So really exploiting a lot of different kinds of niches, for example. And so all of those different kinds of beaks um, evolving over relatively short periods of time. And you can make cases that the beak shapes are adaptive to how it is they're going to get their food. And so it, it's called an adaptive radiation. Okay. But a big part of the diversity also, the, the, the examples of different forms that we see in this respect to beak shape, body size, life history, et cetera, that's most definitely adaptive and is arguably one of the few really good examples of it. But all of the diversity also comes from more traditional speciation processes like vicariance and uh, separation on islands, right? So you end up with exam an example of these kind of main body types, beak shapes, life histories, a gene corresponding to different genera of these of these birds, and then each island has its own different version, kind of like you get in other uh, biodiverse places like the Andes, where you have different uh, where you where you have kind of different geographic breaks of lineage that let give lineages the time and space to diversify with regards to other traits as well. So and honey creepers make Darwin's finches look um, pale <laughs> in comparison <laughs> to the incredible amounts of color and, um, and beak morphology variation that are in these, uh, in these birds. They so also have some of the best names because they haven't been anglicized at all. And so they're <laughs> all, they're all native. So like, you know, what's your favorite name of a Hawaiian honey creeper? Well, I'll preface by saying that I wish I remembered what they meant, and I don't know off the top of my head, but Akiapola Owl okay. is a really good one. <laughs> and another really, they're fun to see written out too, because um, a lot of them, have, begin, the, if you're spelling them out properly, you, you start with an apostrophe at the beginning of each, uh, okay. of each name. <laughs> and so it's like the little glottal stop that happens before each one. And, and in Hawaiian, um, 
it's a, it's an amazing language in part because of how much how much can happen with only I think there's only 12 letters that correspond to the English language. Oh wow. Um but uh you pronounce them all phonetically. So if, if Akiapola Al has it's let's see if I can do this from memory it would be apostrophe a k i a p o l a with another apostrophe a u. Oh my gosh. So that would be Akiapola. <laughs> I was like looking these up, researching, and even just like writing them down. I was like, "Did I do that right?" Like yeah. even like the the iwi. I was like, "I don't think I wrote this down correctly." Yeah, <laughs> yeah growing up on the mainland and in, on the in, in the northeast, where there isn't a whole lot of, or isn't a huge islander community, it definitely took some time in the islands to get used to all the names personally. But so, so you actually lived in Hawaii then for how for how long? I did a six month stint on Kauai and about a six month stint on the Big Island. Okay. Yeah. Wow. You felt pretty comfortable with uh, pronunciation and everything. Oh yeah, you know, you're, yeah. It's, you know, these birds are your are your life and your and for me, my, it was my work there, both as a um, both as a biologist and as a tour guide. Okay. And um, so yeah, you know the names in and out. All the all the, na- all the Hawaiian names are, are everywhere. The, the streets. I mean, you're there you're in Hawaii, right? Every, yeah. So everything. And <laughs> you you get familiar with the phonetics pretty pretty easily. So with all the different like honey creepers that are in Hawaii, then while you're living there, do you pick like a specific one that you want to study and try to pursue that? Or are you kind of looking at everything all at once or? Yeah, well, I mean, it, you have to look at everything all at once, uh, especially from the perspective of these state and federal agencies that are most involved with conservation, because that's really the source of jobs for a lot of people. I think a lot of people uh, who are field biologists who get introduced to Hawaii do so through um, conservation field jobs. And again, those can happen through the state agencies like the Department of Land and Natural Resources there or through a federal lens, whether it's U.S. Fish and Wildlife or USGS. Um, All of those entities have have been a huge source, been a huge resource for biologists looking to get into the field. Um, And so, yeah, you focus on everything, but you, you have to look at everything. But most you go in with a specific job, usually focusing on a specific species. Okay. And and I would say they're not particularly easy to study either, right? I would how, say how, no. would, how would you compare that <laughs> for us to, for instance, the area you're doing your dissertation in in western Ecuador, which is also a tropical forest? I feel like the forests of Hawaii are, are have a level of uh, difficulty associated with working in them that makes the birds sometimes really hard to study. Well, it's really island dependent, right? Because we, as we were mentioning, you have this chi- chain of islands that have slowly eroded away. So on the big island, it's it's generally the flattest um, because the terrain is pretty flat. You end up with these larger. You end up with and and the you end up with more large trees. So the forest is taller. It's more, the primary forest is more spread apart. Um, so it's a lot easier to navigate. It's not as steep, and that contrasts to somewhere we're like uh, you know Maui, for example. It's um, it's especially the area where there are birds left now. It's just incredibly steep. Um, the rain has eroded these gullies, so you're constantly going up and down, up and down at a huge geographic scale. And then that contrasts to Kauai at the opposite end of the major island chain, and where it's just a constant. It, it, you know, the only way you can kind of get around is by following these pig trails that have been formed by the by the introduced pigs there. Um, so it's there. Kauai and Maui are especially complex, and the Big Island usually feels like a breath of fresh air. Okay. (laughs) And so what are some of the different ways that the birds have, like, adapted, that the honeycreepers, I mean, 
you know, there's so many different honey creepers that we know about, like the, you know, longer beaks to reach in some of the flowers and things like that. But as far as like, I don't know, do you have any examples of ways that they've adapted that you want to expand on? Sure. I mean, I'd say there's probably three or four main phenotypes, if you will, beak forms and life history styles and foraging strategies that birds, that honey creepers will use. And that's reflected in their beak shape. So I said that um, three or four, as I look at my little reference sheet to make sure I don't miss anybody, we'll see how many that actually is. So there's one clade that's all these birds that kind of re-evolved finch-like beaks. So the ancestral honey creeper, whatever, whenever this honey creeper clade emerged, um, probably had kind of a generalist beak, something, um, I mean, something not quite what we think of as a finch, but something a little narrower. So the ala oahio group, so that's, or in English, things like Maui creeper is the last one left in that genus. Those are the most basal within the tree and also kind of ecological generalists. And from that, kind of this more generalist state, um, they kind of re-evolved these larger, heavier finch-like beaks like what we see in Palila today. Um, the extreme example would have been something like a Kona grosbeak, which is now extinct and has just this huge conical bill for crushing seeds. Um, you have a handful of birds that specialize that are nectarivores. So things like Eevee, the famous uh, bird that's all red with black and, sil and black and silver wings, and Apapane, which is probably the, hon the honey creeper that's doing the best in today's world. Um, so those all form a group. Um, you have a group that are kind of the more prolific generalists today. So they're the most recent members of the clade that have kind of evolved again, this kind of generalist beak structure that the basal clade, the Alawahios had. And those are the Amakihis. So Hawaii Amakihi, Kauai Amakihi, Oahu Amakihi. Um, and then the kind of the extreme, and to me, the, the most extreme are this group um, that are called the heterobills. And they're, they're called the heterobills because most of them, the upper mandible, is longer than the lower mandible. Uh, so the Akiapola'au, the one I used as an example of a long, complicated name, is kind of that and a, a bird that's still extant today, the Kiwi Q or Maui Parrot Bill. Um, both of those kind of use their upper and lower mandibles to do different things. And Akiapola'au especially, um, well, they're, they're famous for this incredible thing where they've, they've filled the woodpecker niche where they'll use their lower mandible to chisel away at the bark and then they'll use their upper mandible to kind of scoop out whatever's inside. Oh, wow. Um, and so they've got this really complex um, physiology to help them deal with that. Cool. And that's one of the things I find interesting with this group is you've got, you've got insectivores, you've got uh, gramnivores eating seeds, and then you've got this nectarivores going after the nectar. And so what this clade of birds found in Hawaii, as Shannon was saying, was this this incredible set of niches that they could potentially fill. And they had the capacity, probably from a rose finch type ancestor, to figure, you know, to evolve that, which is really interesting. And, and, and again, one of the things that Jacob was talking about is that as these different morphotypes, you know, different bill types got to different islands, there was no gene flow once they dispersed such that they made new species on the different islands. And so almost every single island has these replacements of the various different types of, uh, of honey creeper uh, phenotypes, as Jacob was saying. So, and it's not just bills either, right? I mean, um, body, the, the whole, I think just about the entire range of body size that you see in the entire finch family, which is a huge family, you see in honey creepers, all the way from the smallest things um, like Aniani Ao on Kauai, 
to Conan Grosbeak, which is now extinct. Mm. The way locomotion too, you have a you have a, a species all throughout the tree that have kind of independently evolved this kind of creeper more nuthatch or black and white whirler mode of kind of creeping around the trees, um, holding their bodies close, and others kind of that are almost like if you've ever seen a marsh wren kind of do its split between reeds, you'll see the nectarivis the the nectarivores doing that on flowers and trees. And they have really cool tongues, the ones oh, that yeah. have evolved nectar feeding. And that's happened a lot in birds, that when you do that, you have to turn your tongue into a straw, right? So yeah. you, and you can do that in lots of different ways. So if you look at pictures of hummingbird, of hummingbird tongues, you'll see it. If you look at flower piercer tongues, and if you look at honeycreeper tongues, you'll see all of the adaptations that birds have come up with to suck nectar out of plants. Some birds break the plant on the outside. Some birds stick their tongue all the way in. There's lots of different ways you can get you can get nectar uh, from a plant. And I was just looking before we came here at at their tongues. It's really amazing. So everybody, go look at pictures. Yeah. Of, yeah. <laughs> of honeycreeper tongues. Yeah, I think it was actually so. It was the tongue common traits in the tongues. That was one of the two major traits that was used to group them together before we looked at the looked at we were able to look at DNA to decide they were a single family from a single common ancestor, and the other trait was their smell, uh, which is this kind of amazing thing. If you ever have the if even if you open up a drawer of honey creepers in the museum or if you're lucky to hold hold one in the wild, they kind of have this musty smell in their feathers, almost kind of like a storm petrel or some seabird. And they all have it. It doesn't matter what what mode of really? life they have. It's just this weird thing. And people, I don't think that you could call them poisonous. I don't think there's any serious adverse effects from consuming. But, but it's that, different in its notice compound. But yeah, hmm. it's definitely distinct. Uh, and do you know what it is that makes? I don't smell? off the top of my head. No. That's cool. And whether it's you know an interspecific communication thing between them or an anti predatory thing, I'm not sure. But huh. it's uh, it's definitely unique to them, including within finches. So how many different uh, honey creeper species have you held? Oh, maybe one or two. Okay, only a handful. It's there aren't a, very many left. There aren't very many left. Uh, the projects that I've worked on weren't particularly mist net heavy. Okay. Um, and where I have been out running nets, you know, you know the, the boss has to come in to handle all the, the ones <laughs> that are listed as endangered. So how many honey creeper species were there back when everything was alive? Like how many on record are there? Oh, that's a tricky question, actually. I think they know about somewhere between 55 and 60 of them, oh, wow. but that doesn't mean little birds like that don't fossilize very well. So if there were other things that we don't know much about, um, but somewhere in that range, and I think there are 17 um extant now, which means they're still existing, and all the rest are extinct at varying times, mm. um, mostly coinciding with the arrival of humans and the things that humans brought on to the islands, which we'll talk about again soon. So, you know, a lot of the speciation is really interesting to me because they would go one island, the next island, the next island, and then every once in a while, one would go back. Uh -huh. And then it would change again. So the, the tree of life for them isn't as simple as jumping from one island to the other island. When you look at the tree, you can see pretty clearly that some things that are on different islands are each other's closest relatives, and they've hopped back mm -hmm. onto some of the other islands. Yeah. But the fate of these islands is to go away because that's what the oldest ones have done, you know. And coming back to something Jacob said earlier is 
one of the things about these birds is that they've maintained the capability of flying around and exploiting these resources, some of which are seasonal. And so that probably adds to the capacity to get across some of these ocean channels and, and colonize islands. And they again. come from a stock that does that, right? So not every bird is going to have the capacity to A, get out there, and B, go from one island to the other island. There's something, there's whatever makes the you nomadic, which I have no idea what that is, those birds have it. And, uh, you know, and it's clearly they've done that several times, many times in with, their evolutionary history. With the interesting caveat that they've never gotten off Hawaii. Are there well, any birds that are non-honey creepers that are native to Hawaii, or is every bird from Hawaii some type of honey creeper? No, there there are, <laughs> there are a bunch of different groups, and and their evolutionary relationships are really interesting. So there's a there's a thrush, which is a elapio, which is basically its closest relative is from Central America. It's a, the solitaires, and so and and then there are others like uh, what the Okay, so there's a lot. Well, I wouldn't say a lot. I mean, there's, okay. really, there's really four. So, there's really four land birds that successfully, well, songbirds that successfully colonized the islands and formed endemic species: the honey creepers, the finches that we've been talking about, the Myodestes solitaires, which came from South America, and the um, and then the monarch family. So the monarch flycatchers are this huge group throughout Australasia. Um, so they've managed to colonize from that direction. Um, and then um, this group called the, the, well, actually, no, I remember there's a, there's a fifth group. But the fourth are these groups called Mo, uh, called Mohoaday, the O'O's. And so it's a family that was entirely endemic to the Hawaiian Islands and is now, the, and, and is now entirely extinct. So the last one was, oh. Oh. Went, disappeared in, in the late 80s. Most of the other ones before that disappeared in the 20s. And they were one of these really deep branches within the songbird family tree. And for a long time, people were trying to figure out what they were most closely related to. Some people thought, oh, you know, they're, they kind of look like this other big radiation in, in Australasia, the honey eaters. Maybe they look a lot like some birds that live in similar ecosystems in New Guinea. They're probably, they're probably that. But again, thanks to modern molecular techniques, we now know that they're this really deep branch and their closest relatives are things like this, the silky flycatchers. So cedar waxwings and phenopepla, um, they're embedded deep within that group. Which are which are new world. Exactly. And, and so one of the f interesting things, coming back to what you said earlier about Hawaii, is it's so isolated that we really shouldn't be surprised that things are coming from multiple continents to actually get there because it's just such a random gamble for a group of birds to end up there with enough individuals to start a population. Yeah. I mean, just think about what the first people who saw those birds there's no way they would have thought they were all each other's closest relatives when you yeah. look at them. There's no way things that have that kind of beak differences. Most ornithologists classify things based on beaks. So your your first assumption would not be that all these things that look so different are each other's closest relatives. Yeah. yeah. John, um, I want to go back to something you said. Has anyone, like as part of a conservation effort, tried to take these birds elsewhere to see if they could survive? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, we could we can spend a lot of time talking about uh, what's happened with respect to uh, avian malaria, which has decimated populations and led to all kinds of conservation efforts. Um, 
Most of what they do, though, is actually essentially, I guess I would call it in situ conservation, meaning meaning they're bringing them in from the wild in Hawaii and trying to to help preserve the populations that way. Would 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 you say that, Jacob? Yeah, I'd say that's the strategy. I just wanted to point out quickly too the two other so I'm up to six songbird families now. Taylor Bird established. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So crow so Corvid's got there. Yep. There's one extant and a couple of extinct crows that made it to the islands. When and the extant ones just hanging by a thread and you know, it's extinct in the wild and the last ones are in captivity now. Okay. And then uh, there's But they've been they've been trying to re release them without without much success. Yeah, there've been a lot of waves of of, uh, unsuccessful thus far reintroductions um, and then old world warblers so there's a there's an acrocephalus reed warbler that got to not, none of the main hawaiian islands but to nihoa okay. which is a tiny just this little rock sticking out of the ocean several hundred miles west of Kauai. that happens to have a honey creeper on it too yes <laughs> so that's probably the furthest from the main islands that they got thanks everyone for listening that's all for part one of the episode Join us next week for part two. We'll get more in-depth in the conservation efforts as well as what has led to the status of these birds. One thing next week that is super interesting to me was how resources can be allocated to conservation. Jacob talks a little bit about how a bird like the ivory-billed woodpecker's conservation efforts can suck resources away from other birds, like the Hawaiian honeycreepers. One thing that can help all endangered birds is raising awareness in general. Please, after listening, consider how you could raise awareness and spread the word about many of these threatened and endangered birds out there. Next week, we'll touch more on what can be done. If you have a question for John, Shannon, Amanda, and I, feel free to send it to podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com or reach out to us on Instagram. All right, thanks, everyone. Thanks.